How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 192. What's the significance of 192? It's a year. No, I was going to think, I was going to be like, oh, see, you had another nine in there. It's the year Shawshank came out, but I'm pretty sure Shawshank came out in 94. Oh, yeah, you're right. We're, we're a little a while from... <laughs> yeah, 94. When we get to that point of episode 1994. Oh, that would be a good episode 194, wouldn't it? <laughs> not to tease two weeks or, ahead. I know. Well, not to tease a thousand weeks ahead <laughs> once we get to that number. How are you, Jake? Uh, I'm all right. I like that you type in Shawshank Redemption, the like fifth search is Shawshank Redemption 2. What? Yeah. That doesn't exist, surely. No, it's just... People Googling the release date for... I almost said Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> that does exist. There is a release date for that Can you video imagine game. there was? He goes back to prison. <laughs> it's like season... It's like the third season of Prison Break. Hey, guess yes. what? He's back in prison. Guess what? He's out of prison. A, that was a fun guess what? He's, talk, He's back it? in prison. <laughs> and it just goes on that until the show gets cancelled again. So, Jake, do you have a piece of trivia from the film of the week for me? I do. Believe it or not, we actually have a singular thing we're going to talk about today, and that is the Swallows of Kabul. Hmm. Yeah, I think I, I like to think that this is a bit of a conversationless podcast at times, but there is there is a train track. You, you, we do try and keep onto that train Always. track. Always. And uh, I'm not even going to pretend to segue from that to the fun fact of the film. So, the co-director, Zabu Britman, I believe that's how you pronounce their name, uh, insisted that the voice recordings be done before any of the animation was done. So, in that way, I guess you would say the delivery of the dialogue or the performance. Almost like a radio play. Yeah, in a sense. I also, I also kind of assumed that it would, that was common practice that you would do a, at, at least, oh, at mm. least in terms of two D animation. You know, you kind of get the mouth movements. I always thought correct. the previs was well i feel like they would always have like maybe not the final final animation but a previs sure previsualization of it so it allows actors to have an understanding of context of their space yeah like the geography of it i suppose yeah because i think that does play into it for sure because mm. think about when an actor acts in a live action film that they do become one with the set mm. that they're in so it is. Int- I think it's more interesting to have it recorded ahead of time because there is no. They basically are just going off a script, so they're going to have to fill in the blanks. They we they explicitly don't even know what their character looks like. Sure. Yeah. No, which is interesting, and and it, the way this is worded is that it's almost like the delivery of the actors informed the watercolor animation. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think there's a very specific reason they've gone for this unique look, but. Yeah, no, I thought that was quite interesting. Not that there was a lot of other trivia facts on IMDb <laughs> directly mm. from the source, but Zeke, have you have you gone offshore to find some other facts? I, I did. I, oh did. My I went go- a bit rogue. Oh my goodness. Um, speaking of the watercolor aesthetic and even yep. even the concept of recording the audio prior, to, um, what's really interesting was the original vision. So the co-writer of the Swallows of Kabul, Sebastian Tavell. Mm. Um, wanted to make a movie with real actors, not animated. Interesting. And I find this really interesting. So we we actually were talking off air, uh, taped in Kabul, uh, with dialogue spoken in Dari, an Afghan language. Uh, this idea was dismissed due to severe financial issues. 
So there's a limit, uh, financial limitation wow. that refl- uh, reflects the animation style, and we would have wow. got a wildly different film. Not to mention one of the things we talked about, which we might we just address probably in mm-hmm. the second half of the show, is the fact that this is a French film set in Afghanistan, and we can talk sure. about yeah. uh, why the motivations behind that were later in the show. Yeah, no, I guess it's one of those happy accents because I watched it being completely convinced of of the animation being from the ground up and for a very specific purpose. But hey, they just couldn't afford to do it otherwise. <laughs> but Jake, obviously this won't be on the poster behind me. No, it's too new. It's too it's recent. Too... I'm guessing this film would definitely be on your 1100 films to watch. It would definitely be on my list. It, I think this film's spectacular. I mean, I sung its praises couple of years ago god i i looked this up it was when we did tenet that uh, episode 84 that was when i first saw this film yeah and i was just completely blown away by it it's interesting rewatching it sort of settling on that hype for two years mm-hmm. and kind of rewatching it and being not not that i think any less of this film by any stretch of the imagination. i still think it's absolutely brilliant and everything that it attempts to do it does very well but I, I, my bold claim that I made last week of, oh, this this was easily my favourite film of the year that I saw in 2020. Don't know if that stands up necessarily. It was a, there was a lot of great stuff that came out. It was. In it was those a t- last It's a big years. year to be in. Yeah. So, But it would absolutely still be on my list. Excellent film. Yeah. It definitely... It would make my list too. Nice. And there's... I probably am not going to sing its praises as much. Um but I think in terms of its animation style as mm. being quite unique, I mean, I, I'm, I am a sucker for a unique uh, presentation sure. and obviously an exploration of a world that I don't really understand. Um, I think that it's very interesting that we're doing this film following a Catherine Bigelow film mm. in which we talked about The Hurt Locker and, and that was obviously in Baghdad yep. at the time. And sort of looking at the the dynamic obviously through the western lens whereas this is taking a full exploration of, of what it was like to be an afghan like an afghani in, sure. in afghanistan and a lot um, more natives under Taliban in the rule. yeah of course yeah. um very intriguing very intriguing concept and stylistically quite phenomenal like oh um, my god yeah um from a, a narrative point of view, we can we can explore in the second half of the show. Mm. But Jake, before we jump there, what have you caught in the last week? A uh, whole lot of nothing. <laughs> How many days? What have you caught in the last uh, week? Cool. Well, that's a no. I I can only say I've really caught two shows and a movie. So two shows and a movie, four uh, funerals and a wedding. Yeah, and one of these is quite interesting. So. I don't know. Did I talk about um, Welcome to Wrexham last week on the no, show? No, I don't. That doesn't sound familiar oh, at all. Because um, I did start watching it last week, but it was at that point where it wasn't enough worth mentioning. So, gotcha. You like um, just started it. Gotcha. Welcome to Wrexham dropped on Star slash Disney Plus mm. a couple of weeks ago. Might have been on there for a while. I th- I think it might have been a, a soft release. Nothing too crazy. It's an FX show. Yep. Um, that features uh, Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds. And oh. so Rob McElhenney from... I've talked about him through Mythic Quest and Always Sunny. Um, that's sort of his his fame. He's a comedy act, TV actor, and obviously Ryan Reynolds is Ryan Reynolds. And it's a documentary series that follows them buying a Welsh football club. In, in This has happened in oh. real life. So they have bought a fifth-tier football club in Wales and it sort of follows their 
journey of revitalizing this club that's the oldest in in Wales mm. and is home to one of the oldest grounds in Eng- in in England uh, in the UK in general. So it's quite interesting. Um, there are already things. So it's obviously you got these two very accomplished Hollywood people investing in a club, and then they follow obviously the different um, tiers of of uh, following this team that's basically trying to get out of the league under football league two, mm. which, you know, if, to be honest, if you're a FIFA fan, that's the bottom league you can play in, in the British. And I think it's a good way of equating it. Cause it also shows that there's a massive financial jump between the fourth and the fifth league. Right. Um, in which they're trying to get out of it. And they've sort of basically how these two actors have come along, bought the, this club, and basically financially just revitalized it. And it's, I'm only six episodes in, they're dropping weekly episodes because it's an FX show. So is it Moneyball-esque? Maybe a little less mathematical? But... Yeah, a little less mathematical. Okay. It, it almost feels a little bit, to be honest, I wasn't a big fan of the first probably three or four episodes. Not from the, I actually really enjoyed the looking at the, the kind of the slug, the football history and mm. following this club trying to revitalize and these players that were never huge, but... And even the culture of, of a of a small town club, I really yeah. liked that side of it. I actually didn't like the actor involvement. Right. And I thought Ryan particularly was quite forced in his depiction in mm. this. Okay. Which I actually thought Rob McElhenney had good intentions. He was the one who kind of convinced Ryan who had a lot more of the money side. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, very, he's almost now permanently in his Deadpool uh, persona. Persona. Hmm. He's even like, and only in the last one or two episodes do they start to get a little bit more invested. Like in the first six episodes I've watched, and they've only hmm. dropped episode seven, they haven't even gone to Wales yet. Right. Okay. To so look after their club. A lot of build up. So they own this club that they've actually never been to. And they tease at the start of the show that they're going to get there eventually, hmm. but we're six episodes in and they haven't even gone near it. And I thought originally when I when I like saw the thumbnail, I was like, "Oh, this is Disney attempted a Ted Lasso. They've just right. got these two actors doing it." And but it's actually, and then I figured out pretty quickly, "Oh crap, this is a documentary series. Like this mm. is like them buying this club, which is quite interesting because you know celebrities have bought soccer clubs before and not known what to do with them and stuff like that. So it's interesting following it from that point of view. These, yeah. uh, an American and a Canadian buying this English football club and learning about the game while owning yeah. the club. <laughs> There's a certain car crash TV element there, but it, yeah, it's compelling yeah. enough to keep watching and thankfully the episodes are only 20 to, to 30 minutes long. Sure, they're pretty breezy. So nothing too crazy. Um... I finished Cobra Kai season five. Nice. Um, to be honest, mm-hmm. was a good. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the Cali- uh, the Mexico hue <laughs> Mexico, last week. Yeah. I was watching Mexico um, Yellow. Me and Kirsty were up to the third season of Breaking Bad now, and uh, Kirsty was obsessed with the, the the music for the cousins. Because um mm. oh god now now I'm forgetting what the instrument was that she she was theorizing so we put on the audio commentary to, like Dave Porter tell us what what yeah. you used for the music and they almost talked that was the moment literally the start of season three where they're like we decided to make Mexico yellow they literally talk about making that decision I'm like you guys have no idea what a, like 
you know, domino effect you've created by doing this. Yeah. It's really funny. And to be fair, actually, where we left off, that's the last episode in Mexico when I was talking about it. Right, okay. Watch the remainder of the season. Look, it's very clearly the setup to the big finale season. Gotcha. So, so you there'll feel be like there's one six season is left? It. This is it, I okay. feel like. Just because they're basically alluding to this final tournament is basically on the world stage. And the stakes are that if if Cobra Kai wins it, um, everyone in the world will know it and join Cobra Kai's like right. ideology. So it actually has a pretty good progression on progression and setting up the stakes. And I think the villains are really solid. Wasn't as good as season four, but it's a setup season. Sure. So you could argue it's kind of similar to um, season three in that sense that it's setting up to a bigger, the big season, it's the right. interim season. Um, I hope there's only one more season. I think if it goes, if they try and bite off more than they can chew, they could quite easily um, ruin their legacy. Right. Like, ruin what they... they've worked actually legitimately hard for. It's, it, I wouldn't say it's revitalized the careers of these people. It's brought them back into a sense of rele- relevancy. I mean, it was Emmy, no- Emmy nominated. Yeah, of course. So, you know, and for these younger actors, it's definitely a, a platform to go from. Um, obviously, nothing as crazy as like Hollywood movies, I don't think. But I mean, I say, I say that but Thirteen Reasons Why was a platform. For some of those actors and actresses, so maybe could easily serve as the same. But yeah, it's good. It was good enough. And then I watched the first season of Big Mouth. Oh, interesting. I tried to... You've never seen it before? No. Yeah, I never... I don't... I get it. I just... I'm really trying. I'm hoping that the buy-in's going to come, but... It just seems so crude. And, like, I'm not I'm not trying to be a prude to the crudeness. I almost got those words. <laughs> yeah, that's my rap. I'll see you next week. But, I don't know, I just... It never... It, it visually, it just kind of looked a little too gross. I just can't... I'll give it a try, maybe. So you watched the whole first season. Yeah. And... Couldn't, couldn't get into it. I don't it. know. I just... And to be honest, it's... it's Maybe it's because my Netflix cartoon comedy has already been taken up. And that's... that's sure. But to be fair, I wasn't really bought into BoJack after the first season. It, I think it took... There was that PC episode, which right. turns 40, which is at the end of season one. Oh, that's like episode seven. That's good. There's only eight episodes of the first season, isn't there? No, it's 12. 12. I think that's when the buying came in. Sure, Whereas, it takes a few episodes, yeah. I think, what is it, 10 episodes in Big Mouth? And I I laughed occasionally, but not enough to warrant, like, it's, you know, I've heard the show, like, the show's very self-aware. Mm. It kind of goes to that Rick and Morty level, but Rick and Morty doesn't become super self-aware until, what, like, season three, it becomes very self-aware, but... Way too self-aware. Yeah, way too self-aware. And I think Big Mouth. I still haven't watched the, the new problem. season. There's yet. five seasons, so clearly people like it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm just struggling through it. <laughs> really <laughs> hoping the forcing yourself comes. through it. I don't know. I mean, it's twenty minutes. So the other thing is, I you know, and you can attest to this. After a long day of work, sometimes you don't want to sit down and watch a two-hour film with subtitles. Like, it can be tough sometimes yeah. to do that. Like, no, I get it. requires the, that, brain that's, power. That's the main reason I've watched it, is just I've literally just had work, then something on. Work, then something on. Like, I've just got two blocks per day. Yeah. It's like Monday, it, pretty much my Mondays is work, then this podcast. Tuesday is usually work, then shot list. Wednesday is usually work, 
than see Kirsty. It's like there's just a schedule, and I just like I haven't watched anything in, <laughs> in like three weeks. It's it's bad. Yeah. I should be watching more, but it is what it is. I should mention as well the the instrument I was talking about was the octo bass, which is being used in the Hunger Games. Oh, nice. And um. I mean, Kirsty is right on the edge of actually messaging Dave Porter because it, it's funny. We would go through these, um, like, what is it called? Reddit? I've always, <laughs> I never used Reddit. Don't yell at me. But he had a whole Reddit, like, ask me anything. And multiple times people would ask him about that exact track and he wouldn't say what the exact instruments were. Just drive me nuts. There but you go. it is what it is. Since I didn't watch anything, I can quickly talk about a thing that I heard plenty of. Okay. Which, of course, was the Emmy results. We talked a bit so about the Succession TV. one again. Succession one again. No surprise. Ted Lasso won for Ascending Comedy. Is that a surprise? Nope. I doubt it. Season two was <laughs> fantastic. Oh, good stuff. So, I mean, your typical yeah, Saturday Night Live for Variety Sketch Series, John Oliver for Variety Talk Series. I think a lot of those pretty much... There were a lot of surprises, I don't think. Even uh, Zendaya for Euphoria. The Any of the Succession, what Succession cast won? Matthew McFadyen, which I thought was pretty cool. Because That's Tom, isn't Tom, it? Tom, yeah. He had a great season. Not as flamboyant as um, as Roman in terms of a character arc and, and the range that that character goes yeah, through. Yeah, but Tom, I think that's Tom's, like, he is the uh, the undercurrent of that season. Yeah. Oh, His I'd... final betrayal is like... Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Spoiler, and sorry. it's so... I know. <laughs> but what does he betray? I'm always like that. I always say something. It's almost like, oh, spoilers, Jake. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't mean that. I think... I... The show is... It does not matter. I think, even, like, that... I could say all these things, but even what, like, to watch them unfold is, it's anxiety inducing. Oh my God. You could have yeah. spoiled all of Succession. I still would have enjoyed it just as much. Yeah, because it's like, it's, it's so Shakespearean in terms of the drama, but like the performances, the way it's shot, it's mm. just like. Just the, get I mean, that next writing. season in my veins, please. I know. Well, they're, they're uh, good ways into shooting it, I believe. Season four, and it should be eligible for the next uh, round of Emmys, but no, I was very pleasantly surprised that he won out of any that he was the only one in the succession cast to win which i thought was kind of insane but again it's like i think that was a really that his arc was so much more subtle than romans and i appreciate that they acknowledge that too bad didn't they win for the season before um Um, well it's always jeremy no 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 it was jeremy strong he's i think he won both season one and season two and then this season he lost to uh squid game let me get his name. Excuse me. I'm my scrolling through my document here. I gotta watch this Squid Game. Lee Jun Jae. You haven't seen Squid Game? Yeah. What? It's insane. Yeah, I know. I could have. Oh, I'm going crazy. Anyway, he won for Outstanding Lead Actor, which hey, that's fantastic. I'm. It could have gone to Jeremy Strong again. He's already won a couple of times. Could have gone to Bob Odenkirk. We're gonna get into that in a minute. <laughs> don't worry. I'm not the only one angry about this. Don't worry. Um, but yeah. Anyway. Um. Supporting performances, Brett Goldstein in Ted Lasso, Cheryl Lee Ralph in Abbott Elementary. Uh, we already talked about Matthew McFady and Julia Garner for Ozark, which the general consensus is, holy crap, just give Ray Seahorn her Emmy. This is her third win now. What did she do in this last season of Ozark she didn't really win for? I haven't seen Ozark. <laughs> I should probably put that out there. But the general consensus is the follows. Uh, in terms of directing, it was actually the Squid Game pilot that one for Outstanding Direction, I actually really, really like that choice. 
I mean, the pilot is excellent. And then you have episodes from Ozark, Severance, Succession, Yellow Jackets at Dinning of the Wind. In terms of outstanding directing for a comedy series, again, Ted Lasso for No Weddings and a Funeral. Hey, we made that joke a minute ago. Great episode. <laughs> excellent. In terms of limited series, The White Lotus just completely annihilated, which I was surprised because I don't really know anything about The White Lotus. I'm hearing it's a very strange, very like different kind mm. of TV show. That's virtually all I know about it. So I might have to check this out. In terms of the, uh, where is it? Oh, yeah, and then Succession for Outstanding Writing. Abbott Elementary fan, Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series. And if I just scroll through my document, I'm trying, ah, over here, the performances in Limited Anthology Series. So Michael Keaton for Dope Sick and Amanda Seyfried for The Dropout. Both shows I really wanted to see. Mm. So this is promising that they're both winning their respective categories. Maybe one day, maybe one day. Um. Oh wait, she wasn't even nominated. Are you kidding me for Dope Sick? Or am I in the wrong category? Caitlin Dever, where's Caitlin Dever? I could have sworn she was nominated. That's insane. I must be going crazy. Anyway, it is what it is. Um, yeah, those are the main highlights. Um, I mean, between you and me, we haven't watched a whole lot of these shows. No. Um, Succession pretty much dominates, which. That's great, because we're both up to date with Succession. Um, before we move on, i just got to say, because, again, this is the general conversation. That, that's, this is the number being thrown out. It's like 46 Emmy nominations, zero wins for Better Call Saul, not including, like, the, you know, the little mini web series stuff they do on the side. Um, I, I'm i going to be honest. I wasn't... This year, I just I kind of didn't expect it to win anything. Like, as much as I would love to see Ray Seahorn get acknowledged or any of the writing, directing get acknowledged, I'm used to it by now. And I think the internet was especially angry this year about it. Probably because most people assume it's the last season. Mm-hmm. Technically, next year, the final six episodes will be eligible then. So it still technically has one more year. But who's going to who's gonna be talking about Better Call Saul next July? Yeah. The show's done. So. So justice for I, Saul? <laughs> no justice for Saul. We have to call him because this is an outrage. Anyway, like I said, I didn't actually sit down and watch the Emmys, but... Seeing as it has happened in the last week, there's a lot of conversation. I figured we'd quickly go through the winners. Uh, overall, I'm uh, pretty predictable. Yeah, pretty predictable. But yeah, some good ones. Good, do- good job to Matthew McFadden. Well deserved. No dramas. Well, do you have any career updates before we move into our film of the week, Jake? Mm, I do actually, <gasps> because I lied. There is one thing I saw this week: a film that I worked on myself. Ooh, oh, I did sure. tease it last. Is that your week. Bane voice? I was. <laughs> yes, brother. That's that's my Bane. I gotta get the arms. What's a lovely voice? <laughs> that's what people say listening to this podcast. Yeah. Both times when when either of us are talking, like, what a lovely voice. I watched. I'm not a nurse. So there's a Screen West funded short film from Elevate a couple of years ago, the ten thousand dollar Elevate mm. that I was second AC on. So the clapperboard. Mm. I clapped some boards. I saw this set. That's right. Yeah, you you were working next door as we were shooting. We were the, working at the coffee shop next yeah. door. Yes, and that was ironically that the Nexus Theater, which we also shot faces in the crowd in. Yes, is also where they screened the like film. Point out, we were the first to do that. <laughs> we were. That was a whole thing. Didn't, yeah, because didn't Chloe have to really fight to get to get um like permission to use it? No, because I remember no? Well, I talked to I had to get through JT. Right, that's right. Because JT was us. a JT was a T 
technician at the time. Mm. But no one before, and this was the thing, yeah. no one shot a film in Nexus right. until we asked. And then as soon as we asked, about there was one other production at the time that asked mm. to shoot in Nexus following our choice. And then preceding terms, apparently, according to the two main head honchos there, they were asked like three or four times because of faces. Damn. There you go. We set the tone. We set the tone and we, we created and the I visuals. I will fully hold myself to that. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> so there was a bit of a, a, a meta thing there. Doubly meta for me, of course. I shot faces there yeah. and then this film and now watching this film there. But yeah, no. I'm really proud of great Jessica Great Bailey for the film she's turned out. I think it does a wonderful job at sort of creating essentially a horror film using a lot mm. of the the tropes you would find in horror films or not even tropes but just the, the codes and conventions the way you would light and score a scene to essentially make the african australian uh you know journey slash transition into a horror film to exemplify the feeling that she had which of course is based on her personal life and yeah i i thought that all came out really splendidly i'm wondering and I'm only saying this as someone who was there on set and saw a lot of the shots and scenes that did not make the final cut. If it did fall into that, it needs to be under 10-minute trap because I thought a lot of the scenes could have felt with, like, I we're missing this shot that, you know, we spent ages getting this. And, mm. and it's not about we spent the time to get the shot, so let's put it in the film. It's generally a film with the tone that could have worked with longer I was going to say, does it, does it feel like it's a primer for a feature? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I just feel like the I just feel like the journey that we go on and I wouldn't say this if I didn't know the footage existed and it was mm. there on the cutting room floor. It could have done with a bit of not bre- yeah. brevel what was the opposite of brevelty. But yeah, like I it could have you know, well, what's this shot of her traveling, you know, down this road and there was this shot we got here and there were just a few beats that I'm like that could have helped kind of give the whole thing this yeah. More complete feeling. I mean, my that's why I bring up the, do you think this is a primer for something bigger? Right. Because, and this is a very common pattern, especially with the, with Australian short films, mm. is a lot of our successful directors of the modern day often made a short film version of, of what, what goes on. Feature, I mean, uh, sure. The Babadook was a short, wasn't it? Before, yeah, before. you have Monster, Thunder uh, Road. Those Thunder... are some of the more, um, yeah. Like, and if we look at even if we films. just and if we just look at Australian examples, then there are plenty of short films that go on to become the the, the feature mm. that we see, and some of them directly emulate. So you know, you got Thunder Road's intro is is basically the exact same, sure. Um, and then we lead into the rest of the film, but some of them are really just primers for. A deeper exploration yeah. because they use it just as a basically as a, if that gets success critically they'll use it just as a marketing tool to get funding to make the feature version sure and i and i think in that direct comparison this is definitely this short film it feels more like a monster turns babadook where monster feels like the first act of babadook plus the ending and i think this short film definitely like this is something you you wouldn't just use this as like one scene and then continue from there. This is the whole arc you would stretch over yeah. a ninety minute. If film. this film finds critical success, we could easily be here years from now, hmm. a couple of years from now, talking about the feature version coming out because it's you know got enough accolades that it's warranted. Sure, yeah, further funding and investment because 
particularly Screen West and Screen Australia, largely, collectively, they like doing that mm. quite a bit. Because yeah. they like investing in sure things. And, and in terms of this film finding success, I definitely think it will in, in the sort of the more international space. Not only because of sort of the, the cultural mix that the film goes into, but there's so little dialogue. There were very few subtitles you would need to write for this film. Universal storytelling. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, universal story, universal presentation. Um, and I'm really proud of it. I just, I generally think there were some shots... And I'm not talking about entire scenes. I don't think there were entire scenes cut so much as just like, as like, oh, that we got this angle that wasn't covered here. And, and again, it's not a case of I was there and I spent the hours and I want to see it in the movie. That's not it at all. It's just the film generally felt a little too short. Yeah. And I think I know who to point to in terms of why it was too short and the mentality of it will be more successful as a nine-minute film than a 12-minute film, which is not necessarily true. But I'm excited for that. I will say, um, I, w- I obviously won't say too much. It's not the place to say, but I think in terms of a potential f- feature in the future, I think Great's head is somewhere else. Not exactly this story, maybe a version of this story. But no, I, I hope it goes well. I hope it goes well. And I know they're not, I think they're doing a couple little touch-ups with VFX. So it's not completely done. So I said to fix my name in the credits. <laughs> they spell your name wrong? They, they didn't put a space after the D-E. Oh. It just says D-E capital A. I'm like, where's the space, bro? Where's the space? <laughs> well, I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. Mm. But Jake, what are we watching? This week, Zeke. Speaking of international storytelling, The Swallows of Kabul. T'es folle, t'as mis tes chaussures blanches. Oh, ça va. Mais tu sais bien que c'est interdit. Mais t'inquiète, on va à peine mes pieds. Oh là là, j'ai tellement soif, j'étouffe là-dessous. Attends. Hey, petite. Hey. Tiens. Hey, Tata. Tu peux aller avec Samir aujourd'hui Non, mais chérie, c'est pas Tata. C'est juste son chadri, elle me l'a prêté. Moi, je suis Zunaira, sa voisine. Ah, d'accord. <rire> bon, alors, j'ai soif. Tiens, attends, je vais t'aider. <laughs> non, je te bouge pas. Je te bouge pas. Je te bouge pas. Je te pas. Je te bouge 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 pas. Summer 1998. Kabul is under Taliban rule. Zanara and Mohsen are young and in love. Despite the daily violence and misery, they hope for a better future. One day, a foolish gesture causes life to take a irreversible turn. That is not irreversible. It's irrevocable. What? Irreversible. Is that how irreversible is spelled? So interesting. I didn't know that's how irreversible was spelled. I'm going to see what you were talking about. Irreversible. I read the letterbox description. Evocable. Evocable. I think that's supposed to... Evocable. Evocable? It'd be irreversible, wouldn't it? I've never heard of what evocable means. It says not able to be changed, reversed, or recovered. Yeah. Semicolon final. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's the right it's word. The same. It's the same. It's a bit, thing, a bit of a clunky word <laughs> to pronounce. Evocable. It's a French to English translation, yeah. apparently. <laughs> and that's a great place to start our conversation. This ah. is a French f- 
film, Jake. And much like I was talking about in the in the first part of the show, uh, this original pitch was to obviously use one of the two main. Um, I'm just going to get them up now. Official languages of Afghanistan. Uh, Dari. That was mm, what it was. That was um, it. Yeah, it was to do this in live action and do it in Dari. Now, I'm going to say straight off the bat, I wouldn't have mind a film in, in, in Dari, to be honest, because mm. if you're already going to do a foreign film, and and let's be real here, a wide percentile of your audience does not speak French as their native tongue. Why not just make it Dari? And, and there, are, like they said, maybe it was a cost thing, maybe trying to find the right voice actors who could speak Dari and not French. Sure. Clearly might have been a limitation because to find those and to fly them out to a recording studio in France might not have played into the, the budget. Yeah, well, that, like you said, they've already made gigantic changes to the aesthetic of this film based on budget, so... That's probably exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. Would you? I did find that a little jarring because this film's environment and setting is such a character. Sure. In itself, having the characters speak French was a little with the with the especially with the subject matter being so dark. Mm. I did find that a little, right, little like jarring, jarring, and I, and I actually think detracted from. How powerful this piece is! Okay. In terms of its visual storytelling, I think it's fantastic. Its animation style is fantastic, and the voice actors are great. Mm. Don't get me wrong, but I do think that that does take you a little bit out. It's sort of, honestly, I mean, it's the equivalent of what we see a lot in 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 forties, fifties, and sixties cinema, where we've got all these English speaking actors in Rome or in you know, Lawrence mm. of Arabia where, you know, all of the characters who are Arabic are speaking clear and coherently. It's a very old-school mistake, I think. Um, well, not mistake. Yeah, I wouldn't um, say mistake, choice but yeah, sure. That we've... I feel like we've come a long way from, like, collectively. I think mm. we often... We now are very okay, you know, with films like Parasite breaking through to the mainstream, it's like... And when people, when they turn around and go, oh, we're making an American version of Parasite and people naturally actually reject it, they don't embrace it, um, says a lot, I think. Yeah, but I think that's that's sort of taking, I don't like to use the word IP, it feels too corporate, but taking an IP and then trying to Americanize it to then generalize it, which I think is a little different from this, where it's just, it's just a different, you know, group of filmmakers in a different country setting their film in a different country, and then, yeah, the, the voice cast is, you know, notably French. <laughs> so I it really only bothered... Not bothered me, but I really only noticed it the second time I was watching it. I was yeah, like, okay. oh, yeah. So I, I definitely wouldn't say it detracted from my experience in that sense. I think the, the reality is, is... Maybe it's... For me, it's the fact that the language sounds a little too different to what they're... Like, it's too foreign. Sure. Not even from... Like, I would be saying this even if they were English-speaking. I think mm. I'd have the same problem. Right. Um, I think it's just the... It's a very... I mean, it's a very attractive language, the French <laughs> like language. It's very smooth and eloquent, yep. whereas very this is sexy. very harsh and gritty and yeah. and very okay. and very morbid um, as a story and very desolate. Mm. 
It's not very little hope. There's very <laughs> the little end of hope. The story. Well, I would say there's very little hope during the story. Yes. It's a very desolate <laughs> narrative. It's and the the artistic style. Don't get me wrong. I'm so glad they went this route because boy, is it beautiful yet mm. haunting and fantastic in getting inside characters' heads without being too uh, being too obvious. Sure, on and those. and I think that's why I was so genuinely surprised when you when you said that it was a budget reason why it wasn't a live action film because. You know, you got little hints in there of, um, you know, stylism in the animation where, you know, his foot bath is slowly mm. turning red to represent, like, his guilt. And, uh, you know, there's a few little transitions like that that are definitely easier to pull off in animation. But the main reason I, I first off, loved the, the choice of it being animation and what it represented is that the entire film is really revolved around... Um, art and artistry and its place in Kabul and in just in people's lives in general and how horrible things are when that is removed forcibly from a culture. And I think that that's really, I mean, there's a lot more ideas of, you know, whether to run or to stay, but, but it all is revolved around this idea of artistry and, and, you know, artistic freedom and freedom, critical and creative thinking. Mm. Um, Because art is about, you're right, critical and creative outside the box thinking which is the polar opposite of all the politics social political politics that fall under the Taliban rule exactly everything's it's so injected into this culture yeah and and it's a and it plays a it doesn't explore too much the religious side in fact religion's very much a power tool that's used in this mm. in this story and and the Taliban what they they're trying to get across is the is this regime of of purity but uniformity and, and militarization mm. and, and there is no place for critical and creative thought, which whether that comes through, you know, if it's, um, God, I'm going to have to get the names up ready to go here. Cause this is going to be a, <laughs> this is going to be the most challenging. Part so we got Mosin, which is the young man. I think it's Zanara. Who's the young woman. I'm going to get some of these yeah. pronunciations wrong. And, and Eric, I, right? I think it's a tick. But this this is them pronouncing it in French it, yeah. in the film, yeah. And then Muserat, the older woman, who is actually uh, she's in Succession. So there you go, a little little TV tie-in right there. <laughs> oh, she is, isn't she? Yeah. So I was like, oh, I didn't notice that until today. So yeah, those are the those are the four main names you're going to be wanting yeah, to and, keep track and, of and, in this film. And to be honest, it's it's you know uh, when I'm talking about critical and creative thought, it's like most of this character is a history teacher. Mm. Um and and Zana and Zanarar is obviously an artist um of uh, a painter and, yep. and an art historian so their critical and creative thought comes from multiple forms of of educators and the fact that these parts have just been stripped back and we've been left with this desolate um uniform nature where everything's absolute and and um you have to follow these this creed and if you stray from that path you're met with physical violence and mm. and religious persecution and 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 barbaric ways of of punishment and i think this film has that that some real interesting sort of obviously its visual depiction is is so deliberate it feels like mm. that it is interesting that the original idea is to shoot this that way because you know watercolor is such a 
fluid and creative expression. Mm, yes. And rather than just using something like 2D animation, standard 2D animation. Yeah, or, um, or it's just shooting it in live action. Exactly. Um, There's a lot more expression that can be done into the characters and the animation and, and the visual look of it. And that that's why I always just assumed this was animation from the word go because it almost in and itself feels like an artistic form in defiance of the Taliban. <laughs> and I just, I loved that sort of meta connection behind the creation of this film, yeah. which is based on a book. But like you said, it's like very easily anyone could have read that book and be like, all right, let's recreate this in a live action film. Yeah. I'm um, glad it didn't work out that way. <laughs> absolutely. I think um, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head of, on the, the purpose of the film, or at least a, a driving meaning to it. I think, um, you know, we're, we're following the, this story of, of seemingly, it does have a clever misdirect. It's it definitely. Mm. Um, up until that that midpoint, that real critical point, you feel like you're following the journey of, of two men, two male characters right. in, in Mosin and Atik. I mean, Mosin's this contemplative guy uh, struggling with, you know, the Taliban rule, but also his place in the world. Mm. He's, um, he's our main vessel, at least in the first half, of, like, the world that once was. When we see the, the cinema cross-dissolve with, like, the burqa transforms on top of the women that are walking out of the theater and um his resistance to stone the girl at the start is like he's he's the vessel until the regret of like we've lost what we had you know all those years ago now yeah and 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 he and he serves as that vessel from a from a contextual point of view to our knowledge at least in the world that we're in women aren't really allowed to go out in public very mm. often if they do they have to be completely and utterly shrouded in in um burkas mm. like the most extreme measure of, of burqa too not in the and so it's almost easier for men to be going out and just functioning and in fact it feels like a completely an utter like a complete patriarchal overhaul mm. we actually rarely see women out in the world and and the two um female leads in this right. mostly are confined to cells or their homes <laughs> um, sick in bed yeah exactly and it is an interesting sort of uh, you kind of go oh so are these two characters going to cross paths is this right. going to be a story about Atik and Mosin you know you've got this character who's serving the Taliban in Atik mm. but he's also just desolate of hope his wife's dying of, of a cancer that's in its latter stages mm. um, very despondent doctor being like ah just put more morphine in there should be dead in a week anyway. Yeah, but a, but a lot of them, it's like that interaction with the doctor is, yeah. is it almost feels like he doesn't want to serve the Taliban. He's very much a slave. He's not doing... Sure. I think it's more a case of he's just doesn't like them, but is mm. still doing the job and yeah. is a necessary uh, asset to them. So, yeah, you know, this this Taliban, and it's like a teak. He's, he's not a proud Taliban soldier. He actually... He he's a prison warden, mm. and is often told to go elsewhere, but chooses to stay in the confines of the prison, almost hiding his shame that he's a Taliban soldier. Yeah, yeah. Because he's he's in the prison, and everyone goes, "Oh, why aren't you out? It's much nicer to be outside." But he he's like, "Oh, my legs are really bad." But he's very clearly it's that shame aspect to him, yeah. and and we only see that 
behind closed doors when he's interacting with his wife. Yeah, and and they both sort of have, especially him though, this Maserat. Not not even. I mean, yeah, there's plenty of guilt and shame, and and they and they say as much, and that's like their first conversation together. But I, I think part of it as well is that there there's this lived in quality where they're obviously both a lot older than the other couple we're following in the film. And he even says at one point, you know, I've survived 20 years of air bombings and that kind of... They've just both sort of cemented themselves in this situation. And neither of them are very happy about it. But there's also enough sort of wisdom, you know, question mark on the wisdom, uh, that they know better than to question that system, at least until later in the film. I think it's necessary for stories like this to exist... And to be told, and and to be fair, you know, I talked about the language stuff, but I think it's necessary for Western film, and Mm. you would easily throw French cinema into the Western film uh, collective, though in a different language other than English, French films are very popular and very common, so, Mm. um, and I think it's important to address things and explore these perspectives, because... You know, we get so fixated on on the Western history of the of the twentieth century in in World War One and World War Two mm. and how all these European nations were were suffering the persecution. And I think the stories of, you know, Jew, the, you know, the Holocaust and, and Jewish survivors and all that that's all really important. But then all of this stuff goes into the ether. We like, I don't really know that much about the Taliban rule or the, this way of life or what it was sure. like to live in these in these shoes. And, you know, this ties into the, the first half of the show with the, the set you worked on, what mm-hmm. it's like living in, a, in, a, in an African country and coming yep. to Australia and yep. that adjustment period. And, you know, they're, they're, especially when you talk about Mosin and, and Zanara and this, where they're, they're talking about getting out or the importance yes. of staying and fighting for mm, that's another a, preservation, a preservation of culture and artistic identity and critical and creative thinking because that is being lost by the, the brainwashing of, of now a generation being pushed through Taliban rule. Yeah. And... That is truly remarkable. That, that you know, you got these these ex university students, these graduates who were about to go out into the teaching world and and create their own, and were stripped of that. And you know, we've seen that sort of story being explored and stuff with that seven year stint under Nazi rule in World War Two, mm. and how you know Jewish people were stripped of identity or German people were forced to conform. Though they may not agree, and destruction of knowledge, eradication you know, of knowledge. These are concepts where we're familiar with in a historical understanding, and we're able to un- interpret quite well when we watch something like Swallows at Kabul. But we're we're completely foreign to the concept that this happens in other parts of the world, and has actually happened way more recently. This yeah. film set in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, we were both born <laughs> by the so, way, these films. Yeah. It's, and it's not like it ended in 1998. <laughs> you know, and, and at the time, it's like, what, three, four years earlier, Saving Private Ryan comes out, the color purple, you know, Spielberg's putting out the color purple. Sure. Or, or Schindler's List five yep. years prior to this film being set in. Yeah. So the Western world's focusing on, on the events that occurred 50 years earlier when mm. this is actually happening around the time when they're watching that movie. Yeah. And I mean, Hotel Rwanda came out around the same time too. So oh, yeah. there you yeah. go. So it's it is interesting to me, like, and it's important that these films exist. And it's a bonus to see things like an iconic artistic style that show a, that add further meaning to it. And I hundred percent agree. 
it almost is like this little rebellion <laughs> against the, the Taliban Absolutely, rule. yeah. The film in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a message, but it's, it's art form, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a it, it's an interesting thing. I have to admit the 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 middle section with um, Zanara Mosin's fallout mm. is, is an interesting one to follow because is it is it him conforming to this way of life or just giving up? Is that what it is? I think that yields this big argument. It's interesting because obviously she's incredibly upset. This is probably the first time she's had an experience this bad where she's like held up in the heat at gunpoint. There's violence involved. Um, and she blames him partly. She says, you know, from this day on, I hate all men. And their argument, as much as much shame as he has, their argument doesn't escalate until, you know, like, like you said, there's little crossovers here and now and then, especially in the first half of the film where him and Atik meet. And he basically says, you know, why are you crying? Aren't you a man? You know, you should control your woman. And it's that attitude that ultimately leads him to being aggressive in in the fight that ends up getting him killed. And I, I mean, that certainly isn't a coincidence. And, and it's a very shocking point in the story. I had no idea that was going to happen, especially at the Yeah, seemingly the it midpoint. comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I know. It's 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 crazy. And, and I remember watching... The, I saw the trailer a couple of times before I first watched it. So I think... I think when I first saw it, I knew it was about two couples, not necessarily just the two men. I think I had that going, that knowledge going in because I'd seen some of the visuals and this, that idea of the film. But when I realized how quickly, you know, to, to put it lightly, characters were getting killed off, <laughs> I was like, oh God, the, the danger's evident. But I, like I said, I think there's no coincidence that him taking on the values of a tick at the time, which is, you know, the traditionalist more Taliban-esque traditions of, you know, um, your woman is just there to Completely serve you. Completely patriarchal. Sure, sure. And I think I think that little moment where he slips into that personality and what ends up essentially getting him killed, I mean, that's tragic. It's really, And they had an authentic love for each other. Yeah. It's the way they would sort of play with each other. Well, she's um, rife with regret. Oh, my God, for yeah. For the remainder of the film. Yeah. No, it's really sad. And I think that kind of leads into the sacrifice that happens at the end of the film, which well, did first off, cause I'm struggling to actually remember if I could tell ahead of time. I'm, I think I like slowly worked it out. Yeah, no, the scene. I, I could tell pretty quickly. You could tell pretty quickly. I mean, all the, all of, in terms of, of story, I, there's not apart from that midpoint death that sort of, I mean, comes out of nowhere. Mm. The story then kind of reset back to tradition. Like Atik's arc is, is, it's Rekindle. tragically well, cut short in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he knew he was on a suicide mission. Mm. I think for him, it was giving someone else the opportunity of hope because hope had been lost for him. Right. He was desolate at that point. Sorry, uh, when I said tragically cut short, I thought you were talking about Mosin. No, no. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I think from what it is really... At its core is, you know, you look at um, Makaret and and Atik. Mm. We kind of see their dire end in their first interaction with each other because mm. he is robbed of hope, and he saw and he's tired and he really has given up on a lot of aspects of life. He really yep. is just sort of 
circling that that endless thing, and of course, given Macarette's uh, die, you know, uh, terminal illness, mm. she is doing the same. So their their sacrifice at the end, uh, you know, it doesn't sort of, feel as um, like it makes more sense because there's just so little hope left in the two of them. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, there are means to. I think the reality is when they realize all of the pain, well, Atik realizes sort of all the pain he's come, how he's enabled this, these barbarisms and he, and he serves a rule that he doesn't believe in at all. Mm. And he really is sort of just killing time till something happens or something gives. He just, what his change comes is in the fact that he's willing to sacrifice himself for the hope that that critical creative artistic thought lives on. Right. And his turning point comes when he walks into the cell and sees, like, Zanera's, um sort of illustrations. Right. That's yeah. the moment when he goes, I have to get this person out of here. Because it's the representation mm. of that critical creative thought that's been lost by his generation yeah. of people. It's interesting because, yeah, that was, my, that was one of the notes I wrote down is that it, it especially sort of that big shift he has when he first sees her taking sort of the burqa off and sort of revealing herself to the world from inside that prison. At that point, it does become this vague question of, okay, well, what is it that he's so drawn to about her? And I think, I think you've nailed on the head there. I think that's probably the best way you can interpret that character shift. And his wife even says it, you know, I've never seen you. I don't see you cry. And like, I know that there's some spark in you now that this person has caused. And I think she makes a, a comment earlier, you know, like, oh, I'm surprised you tried to set her run away. You didn't run away with her. So I think there was that assumption around, but then she realized there's something more here. Like you said, it's this representation of of bringing back this culture that was once had in in youth. Yeah, and this girl will eventually run back to the to the university, and and you know, like we said earlier, she's staying there. She's choosing to stay in this hostile, terrifying environment where she had all of this horrible thing things happen to her. Mm. She's still making that choice to stay and to, to try and educate and to you know rise a new generation we'll serve of people this, this secret um school mm. which could easily lead to an ending very similar to what happens to Atik and, and Makaret and yeah i think that that willingness to fight rather than to flee is and fight in that way of not violence but with with, with knowledge and education yeah. and knowledge yeah is sort of what this film's trying to represent that the 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 fight for the most part was about um, retaining that cultural identity, the critical thought, the the expressions of art and stuff that this persecution brought. And this is a story of the tale as old as time. And we, we could refer that back to our, you know, first nations people here and how they had to preserve their culture and, and fight to preserve that. Um, or we could tie it to, you know, these more contemporary stories, these 20th century stories where big, big um, imposing political movements, coups, groups, and, and dictatorships rise and quell that knowledge and critical thought. And mm. I think that this film serves to show that these stories aren't long departed from our history. Of In course, fact, they're, they're incredibly still very relevant present. Yeah. and still exist today. And I think it's a, a has a lot going for it, this, this film mm. in general. Um I think the from the from the aesthetic to the story to 
that that representation of, of particularly yeah the importance of of critical thought art history education like true objective education to in itself um not being controlled by a, a militant or institutional mm. body it is funny you mentioned sort of the world war Two equivalent films because when i was watching this especially the second time in, in terms of that message of art prevails my my other example of a film that does it really well is the polanski film the pianist yeah which is set in world war Two, but i feel like there's a lot about the same ideas just through music more specifically mm-hmm. so 100%. yeah a very universal it's a very things. a very adept comparison a film that came out roughly around the time this film was set there you go so look at us just we're just we're, we're making points Zeke, and then we just keep building them together yeah <laughs> this happened the i think the time, this version of our film of the week podcast comes around once every 15 20 episodes where it's like <laughs> that was a really well thought out like piece like i was yeah. listening to the tangential note but i was listening to this tribeca talk from oh, the tribeca cool. film festival yeah with robert de niro and martin scorsese together Can't they go were going wrong. through their filmography together oh that's sick which... up till the irishman yeah i haven't oh, got yeah. to the end yet but we're up to we had just i think i just finished casino nice but they went through like you know, they went through Mean Streets into... They skipped Taxi Driver, which I liked. What? Okay. Well, I liked it because it was, you know, they avoided the, what's, the obvious... What hasn't already been said about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. So it's like okay. they go... I think they went from Mean Streets. They actually did a little bit of Last Waltz, which was great. Oh, that's oh. sick. So they had a little... And then they, they went from Last Waltz to... um, I want to say... Oh, they did a bit of Goodfellas, obviously. Yeah. And then when they went from Goodfellas and they quickly moved into Casino. Oh, no, they did King of Comedy, then Casino. Oh, hell yeah. And oh, then, I'm not going to lie, the segment on King of Comedy was probably the best segment I've listened to thus far. But You've got to link me this. This is awesome. Yeah, it's on Spotify. Nice. Um, it's great. But it was such an interesting thing because like, you sit there and you're like, wow, what a great thought. And it's like, you know, we've had 192 of these mm. and there's probably about 20 of them that I'm like, they're fantastic episodes like how self-indulgent would it be for us to make our own (laughs) 20 best cinema sideshow podcasts i think by if we got to 500 i'd give us the top 10 i'd give a top 10 list that's very specific i think that's like what one every 50 episodes yeah but Crazy. you'd know which... You'd probably be able to find 10 pretty quickly that you looked at and you were just like, wow, that was a great episode. Sure. Well, it's interesting because like my my always go-to is extremely wicked, sh- shockingly evil and vile. But i thinking about it, like, I don't know if our conversation was particularly interesting so much as I remember really disliking that film. Yeah. And I remember having a really solid... I was very... not. I don't want to be like proud, but you know what... I get that feeling a lot where if I don't like a film, I really need to be confident in my criticisms of it. If mm-hmm. I can't defend why I don't like a film, I feel really crap, which yeah. I, I think is totally fair because I, you know, we all work hard to make films here. Mm. We know how hard it is and to just kind of trash something with no good reason. Anyway, so I mean, I kind of go to that because I always think like I have a pretty well-reasoned argument for why I didn't mm-hmm. like that film. But in terms of like the more academic discussions we have, and you're right, part of it is the film itself. Yeah. You know, it's hard to have a very academic discussion about Bill and Ted face the music as much as we had fun with that film. We did. (laughs) 
but it's not as academic as you know the the conversation of artistry's place in society and humanity like this film presents so i get i totally get what you're saying that was a really good comeback Ah, that was really impressive. Jack, do you have anything else to add before we move into our highlight scene? Well, I got a few things, but these kind of all do tie into my highlight scene. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go! So, my highlight scene, and I just. I feel a little like lazy picking this, but it it is my go to. It's definitely the build up to the the football oval shooting, sort of the big climax of the film. Shooting slash executions. Exactly. I should say that, the executions. But um, I think mostly just because when I first saw it, I think I was a little slower to the gun in terms of realizing the switcheroo that was happening. I think I must have just been convinced that there was some other plan in the works mm-hmm. going on. But it really, the second viewing, all right, I guess if you figured it out earlier, your first viewing, it really does recontextualize the long you know, glares or the gazing that a tick does on who ends up being his wife under the burqa. I just, I really love that build up to it. How sad the whole thing is the shock of them both dying, but also just how realistic that would be. It Mm. would be insanely unrealistic for them both to get out of that situation. Um, but yeah. And, and, and how that even ties into that, that cool transition where, you know, we've been talking about burkas. I think there's a different term. You're right. I think this is like a more extreme version of a burqa. Oh, but, it's just a full body burka. Right, right. The fact that it eliminates that that um, there is any sense of gender identity. Exactly, identity, personality, whatever you want to call it. It sort of removes that from obviously women in general in the scenario. Yeah, completely. Well, I say it removes gender identity. It actually, sorry, it completely brands gender right. identity. Good catch. Yeah. Um, because they are. Absolute, but it but it makes them completely and utterly binary mm. in their sense. They are they are all ones or they are all zeros. Yeah, which you know, in in the effort of them trying to remove identity from these people, and it works at the start of the film when they're stoning this woman because we want to remove any sort of association with this other human being. It works against them when now they're trying to find her, and they're surrounded by a sea of women who they can't identify. And then, of course, the cool transition where they all turn into birds from the top-down view. That's yeah, it's fantastic. It's just yeah, it's just wonderful film. It's a tu- it's a it's a tough scene to top. Mm. I'm gonna try and top it. Okay, you or go match ahead. it. Um, I would probably say my highlight scene. I, I do like the introduction to Mosin, the uh, wandering around the city, particularly yep. the the surrealist depiction of the of the cinema, which sort of that's ap- cool. Epitomizes the 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 driving point to this film this this loss of art but the 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 maintaining and it's intercut him walking through this this desolate cinematic cinema cinema site this this um monument to artistry Mm. and artistic expression with um zanara working in her room and rebelling by Mm. um doodling and and playing music loudly playing music loudly and she has a really good intro. That's a really good introduction. Her character being a bit mm. fiery and a bit rebellious, and and this other character who's very solemn and and taken, it has lost his rebellion for educational expression, but sure. is, longs for it, but doesn't have the fight in him to rebel. And I think it makes the impact of both of those introductory scenes makes when they go out together, and they have to borrow like Zanara has to borrow a burka because she's right. not own one. Yeah, she goes out so rarely. Exactly. With you know when she's trying to be fed uh, coke in in the summer and 
leads to this very dramatic, very con- confrontational scene um, because of, of their illegal giggling, really. And, and the, Their playfulness, the white shoes, these such mundane things yeah. that in a Western society we can't even... We just can't fathom that kind of yeah. anti-behaviour, but that's the world that these people live in. The Swallows of Kabul is currently out on Mubi. Yeah, I think... I feel bad, Zeke, for not having watched anything in the last few weeks. So I started my seven-day trial of, of, of Mubi, Moby, whatever you want to call it, um, today. So I'm going to try and, and do a bit of a bit of a sweep yeah, for the so website. I, see what I, I tried to, right? Okay. I was like, I've got, I've got the same trial, yep. and we'll be cancelling it at the end of the week. Sorry, Mubi. Fair enough. Um, but I was like, I got really excited. Because I was like, oh, Petit Mama's on here. I'll watch Petit Oh, Mama. is it really? But it's not. I click on it and it goes, watch trailer. So I don't know if it's been released on movie or it's planning to be released on oh. You know what? I feel like I did see Petit Maman on there or that it's coming out soon. Let's find out. Because I love Petit Maman. Because I was like, oh, I want to watch the next Skiama film. and Here it is. Let's see what... Yeah, there's no play button. It's got trailer. So what's the deal? But there's here? no like coming to at what time? Yeah, it's just got the length, which is seventy three minutes. It's even shorter than this film. And then articles. Yeah, that's really bizarre. I I got to look into this because I know the idea is they have like a f- one film release a day. I thought you were like locked into that film, but it does look like they have like a a predetermined library. I got to do more research into this. I'll figure this out for you, man. Because that's not fair. I also isn't I want you to fair you film. get it for one day because it's like, what if you? What are you supposed to just find a time to do it or squeeze yeah, it in? Yeah, I, I appreciate the commitment force. I know Stephen was trying to get us on this app the other day where at a random point during the day, everyone who's friends on the app get, gets a notification. They have to take a photo in two minutes. Oh, that's the be real thing. That's it, be real. I'm like, that sounds horrible. <laughs> Why would you want that? Yeah. I don't get it either. I like this whole, like, this makes you watch a movie a day logic. Yeah, I appreciate the hustle, but it's not realistic for a lot of us. No. I mean, even at the height of my 365 challenge, the best I could do was <laughs> 320. So, like, now I think I'd be, I'm literally going to be elated if I get to 100 by the end of the year and I'm sitting oh, on wow. 90. And I was like, wow, I've done really good. well. Yeah. I had 109 last year. I'm at 71. That includes a few shorts, though. Yeah. We're both slacking, man. Well, That's okay. Including this film, I'm up to 92 now. Oh, very good. So I, I For should... episode 192. Hey! hey! Speaking of episodes and streaming and everything in between, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms this week? I like the middle ground you covered there. Very good. Coming to Netflix, we have Lou which sees a storm raging as a mother and the mysterious woman next door work together to pursue the daughter's kidnapper. Um, this looks cool. Very, um, uh, The storm is very stormy. It's kind of got this gritty vibe. A little, little Tyler Sheridan vibes, I would say. Mm. This is very exciting. You've also got the Patton Oswalt comedy special called We All Scream, which uh, I really don't know how he is as a comic. I'm sure he's great. He's famous. Mm. But maybe I'll check that out. Who knows? Coming to stand, we have A Star is Born, rich, Crazy nice. Rich Asians, excuse me, and the David Beckham Dockham, Docco called Infamous. There you go. Are they going to bend it like Beckham is the real question. 
Coming to binge, we have Rambo Last Blood, Jackass Forever, which is also coming to Paramount Plus, and Zodiac, which is also coming to Stan. There you go. Pretty good. A bunch of little crossovers there. We also got Sydney, which explores the life of the famous Oscar-winning actor, filmmaker, and activist from, I believe, the 60s. That's coming to Apple TV+. Plus. And coming to cinemas, we have Fall. These two best friends, Becky and Hunter, put to the test when their adrenaline-seeking ways, resulting in them being stuck on top of a 2,000-feet radio tower and no way down. I saw the, uh, the poster looks cool. Yeah, the poster did look cool. Um, I don't know if it's like, oh, it's actually like a Dwayne Johnson action movie that's super cheesy and over the top. Scraper. But hopefully it's as cool as the poster looks. I love the height. How the hell did they get up there, by the way? I guess you got to watch to find out. Yeah. That's the whole idea. <laughs> Smile sees Dr. Rose Cotter begin to experience frightening occurrences after witnessing a traumatic incident involving a patient. Involves a lot of smiling, evidently. Have you seen this trailer? No. It's a lot of, like, I see creepy things. And then it cuts to a woman, like, creepily smiling. And I'm like, okay. Mm. We'll see. Speaking of horror films, Jeepers Creepers Reborn is the fourth film in the franchise and serves as a soft reboot. I'm guessing in the same vein as, like, Halloween 2018. I don't know if it's, like, the same characters, but it Mm. it seems like they crapped the bed on the third Jeepers Creepers, which I didn't know existed. (laughs) I only found any of them. I don't know what a Jeepers Creepers is. My brother loves these films. Loves Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers. I feel like I've heard it before. Oh, you've definitely heard it. Is it Justin Long in the first one? I reckon it is. I reckon it is. Um, So, yeah, that's coming out this week. My brother is going to definitely twist my hand and watch that. See, if I watch one thing next week, Zeke. It won't be anything from Mobile. It'll be Jeepers Creepers, Creepers 4. Yeah. <laughs> we shall see. We also got Gratitude Revealed, which comes from the director of Fantastic Fungi, explores how to live a more meaningful life through intimate conversations with both everyday people and thought leaders alike. See, I have a like and both. Those don't really go together. That's my fault. But I will say, I thoroughly enjoyed Fantastic Fungi, which... You know, that is it's what it is a documentary about fungi and I enjoyed mm. it because of the beautiful visuals and it was something I watched in cinemas during the COVID era, so I was very much just watching whatever and I very much enjoyed it. I know a lot of people had issues with it because it ended up being sort of this I wouldn't call it propaganda, but it was like by the end of the film they'd sort of do a one eighty and like, and here's how to treat cancer patients with this fungi. Mm. And I was like, Oh, okay, it was a little Okay, I see. I I, I know not everyone's gonna like that. Um so I don't know if a film like this, which is about, you know, living a more thoughtful life or meaningful life, is that going to have a similar twist? <laughs> I don't even want to joke about nah. what it could be. <laughs> but we shall see. We have See How They Run, which previews at Luna this Friday the 23rd and Hoyt's this Sunday the 25th. An exciting, comedic whodunit. The trailer is very much like Knives Out, but I'm really excited for this. Sarsesha Ronan, Sam Rockwell... Adrian Brody, Ruth Wilson, and Harris Dickinson. It's a good cast. Yeah, it looks fun. Yeah, it looks really fun. When's, the last, when's the last time we've seen her? Uh, little Women? Sir no. Ronan? Yeah. I can't be Little Women, can it? I. It's been a while, man. I feel like it's been a while since we've seen her. Oh, French Dispatch. Yeah. yeah. She's great in that. How could I forget Wes Anderson's best live-action film? 
What is the hate on French? I don't. I don't know, man. Everyone I talk to does not like that. I don't get it. I just don't get it. We're just we're gonna do another podcast on French Dispatch and yell at everyone. (laughs) Which one's she in? She's in like one of the later ones, isn't she? In, that, in French Dispatch. I'm trying to remember what she she's, she's the... I think she plays like a hooker in the third act. Or the third story. That's it. Yeah, yeah. she's like in... Not a cell. Oh, no, she's sitting outside the cell. Yeah. She's like taunting... Yeah. That's it. Because I remember what... Um, she's not in it a lot. What's no. his face? The other one. The other one who's like a baby. He's a, sorry, he's a baby. A baby. Really, really, the yeah, ladybird counterpart. What's his name? He's in Doom. Oh, Timothy Chalamet. That's it. <laughs> the baby face, man. He's in Doom. He looks like a baby. <laughs> he does. I know. I know. He's the hot. He's the hotness. Zeke. He is. He is. We he's can't. The, we can't. He's the hot young thing. Yeah. Actually, well, Harry Styles is. So that all that stuff. We, I know we talked about it. The Olivia Wilde stuff. Just a quick. I don't take. know if we've ever talked about it on the podcast. Oh, okay. This is going to go on another twenty minutes. What do you Sorry. want to talk about? Zeke? Let's 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 finish this and then we'll. <laughs> I'm telling you, Z, we are definitely going to do Don't Worry, Darling. We're definitely going to talk about all the drama. Okay, cool. I don't know if how much you would like It looks that, like a good The film looks excellent. Yeah. I'm hearing it's not excellent, but that might be because of all the drama. Okay. I don't... It's frustrating, man, because I saw the trailer. I was like, this looks sick. Yeah, I thought it looked really cool Florence in the trailer. Pure, let's go. We'll see. Well, because... Yeah, okay. We can talk on... I don't know if you want to talk about that now or keep with the streaming. Let's well, go. it depends. You want to know the whole story, though, don't you? Or yeah. You, yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot, isn't it's it? It's just a lot of interpersonal drama between everyone. Does Chris Pine like Harry Styles, or is that they don't like each other? Is that well, like... <laughs> The room is that Harry Styles spit on him. Yeah, I saw that. That's what I saw. screening, yeah. But is that a deliberate thing, or...? I, I mean, everything I've heard leading up to that moment... It wouldn't surprise look, me that this week, if we do, don't worry, darling, on the show, which I'm sure we will. We will. We can jump. <laughs> we, we can. We can flesh it out. <laughs> but I saw the spit, and and I was like, I watched the trailer, <laughs> and I remember watching the trailer and being like, this looks really cool. <laughs> the cast are spitting at each other, but they're spitting at each other. Then I was talking to Olivia Wilde for some reason. <laughs> I will say, I was sort of in camp, like, what the hell is everyone's problem with Olivia Wilde, and then. After enough things were revealed, I was like, oh, okay. I can't isn't, get, it I can't isn't it just snarky? Isn't it just snarky set stuff? snarkiness. Um, she, I think the big thing that for me was like, oh, okay, I get it now. I get why people don't like her. There's a whole thing with the whole Jason Sudeikis cheating on him with Harry Styles arc, which I'm not going to get into because okay. that's a little like he said, she said sort of thing. Um, but the thing is she straight up lied about firing Shia LaBeouf in order to keep Florence Pugh safe for the film. And it's come out that that's not how it played out. He quit, and Florence Pugh had no problem with him. And she's lying for, like, brownie points in the PC world that is Hollywood. Okay. One, I, yeah, you can tell I know. me that off the air. I, I know. But... It's such a thing. I was like, that, that's the thing that I was looking into. I was like, And you oh, feel okay, like the film's it. being judged on that context. It's very interesting. I hope it's not. Like, if people give me a bad review... It's a shame, because I want it to be great. The film looks excellent. But... I just, I feel like, I feel like despite all the drama, these people, reviewers and whatnot, I feel like they're still able to distinguish the difference between behind-the-scenes drama and whether the film's good or not. I'd say so. Otherwise, Jared Leto would have never got a positive review, right? hey <laughs> <laughs> oh Moving good on. Good stuff. Moving on. Finally, You Won't Be Home. Sorry, You Won't Be Home. You Won't Be Alone. 
which is the gothic horror Aussie film in which a girl is transformed into a witch, begins playing at Luna, I believe from the 22nd, like, properly. I think it was a preview screening or something last yeah. time. So I'm very excited to see that. And they're also re-screening Rabbit Proof Fence this Sunday, the 25th. A film I've never seen. What? Oh, we um, talked about this. Yeah. You've definitely mentioned this before. That's all right. We'll do it one day. I think we should. I feel like that's <laughs> that's our duty, doing a West, a West Australian classic, that's even though it's blows done by mi- Screen South Australia. <laughs> well, it blows my mind, because we saw that film like four times in school, that you haven't seen it once. Yeah. Just got the skip. You must have, Yeah, you skipped all those days. <laughs> well, we're not doing any of those films next week on the show. But we are sticking with our foreign film theme, aren't we, Jake? Oh, I like But what are we watching? Next week in the show, Zeke, we're looking at something even more recent than The Swallows of Kabul. It's called Drive My Car. Boom, boom. ひきのこったものは死んだものを Special relationship develops between an aging, widowed actor and a 20-year-old chauffeur. Yamaguchi. <laughs> Yamaguchi. That's the director. I, I like to say it like that. I know. It's a nice... It's actually... <laughs> you know, some of them have got, like, really sick surnames, don't they? Like yeah. Yamaguchi. Like, dear Grella. Is it? They only have to spell it correctly, is all. <laughs> <laughs> you know the amount of people who forget my name has a hyphen... In it? Oh, really? So, yeah. Just tell him it's like Spider-Man. Spider-Man has a hyphen in it. So, Rizuke Namaguchi. Hamaguchi. I feel like I've heard of his films, but I've never watched any of his films. Yeah, I'm curious. He's he's obviously a Japanese director. He's not a South Korean director. Rizuke Hamaguchi. I've heard this name before. Asako, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy... Happy Hours. Yeah, he's made quite a few films. Yeah, this this strikes me as like kind of the Bon Joon-ho parasite. Like, he's finally c- like completely dominated through that invisible, you know, foreign line of recognized household name in Western society. Like, I feel like filmmakers, film enthusiasts have known this name until recently. Well, he's got quite a few... Films on movie, so maybe this will have to be a oh, multiple film, an unofficial week. director's corner. Unofficial. I like. See if we can get an that. idea of this film. I haven't watched a lot of Japanese theatre, cinema. No, theater. no. I think we've got we've kind of overhyped South Korea the last few. Well, I wouldn't say overhyped, but yeah, I think we've gotten a little distracted. Here. We need to watch more Japanese. Yeah, Bong, Bong Joon Ho is South is, Korean. Is Departures. Which I think it was won. Fallen Angels. That's Hong Kong, wasn't it? Bang, Hong Kong. Oh, you might be right on that one. The Parches. There it is. Wait, why is it not coming up? One best picture in twenty. Oh, sorry, best international film in twenty ten. I think that's Wong Kai Wai is, to my knowledge, is from Hong Kong. Boom. There you was go. Right. Boom. Well done. Mm. We're exploring the world, Zeke. 
slowly but surely. Yeah, you know we should do one of those uh, scratch, you know, those scratchy maps where you visit places in the world, uh, but instead every time we cinema. watch them, yeah, we do a cinema scratch match. Is that our new podcast, the Cinema Scratch Match? No, but we could do it on the show, <laughs> despite the fact no one could see it. And then we put it on Instagram, like, this Sound is how effect. many countries in 192 episodes we visited. And it'll be, like, nine. <laughs> <laughs> America's, like, completely, like, we've ripped, this... we've ripped through that last layer and it's just a hole in the map Did... now. <laughs> <laughs> does this, does Swallows a Couple, is that a French film or is that an Afghanistan film? We don't know. Uh, no, it's a, it's a French film. Yeah, um, you probably have to stick with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Letterboxd does this. If you pay the 25 a year for the pro account, you've got... Actually, you might not even need to do that, but it's in the stats. So if I do that now... Now, granted, that's for every film I've ever seen. I've seen, yeah. Not for the Cinema Sideshow podcast, unfortunately. Um, where's my map? There it is, the world map. Now, this is just for 2022, but i got a big that's fat cool. green on Australia, four films. France, nine films. Spain, one film. Germany, two. Now, this... um. If you watch something like Black Widow, that's like seven countries in one film you've just ticked. Because she speaks different languages and goes all over the world. That's how it works. So you can't... Uh, <laughs> United States, 55 films. There you go. Maybe I'll buy <laughs> us a scratch map and we'll put it up in this room. And oh, we'll, I like uh, the sound of that. We'll work our way through it. See if we can finally get a film from every country. There you go. I the- can't wait to watch what Uganda's got to offer. Ooh. But until then, <laughs> thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sci Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Drive My Car. Choo, choo, drive, drive my big red car. <laughs> <laughs>